Hello, and welcome to Glory Be, interesting people and how they pray. Each week, we chat with interesting people about their lives, their work, and how they pray. I'm Sharon Hanish. And I'm Mike Malcolm. Our guest today is Dr. Kevin Donovan, former director of the Pellegrino Center for Clinical Bioethics at Georgetown University, where he remains as a faculty member and professor emeritus of pediatrics. He is a clinician ethicist with over 40 years of experience in the field of pediatrics and bioethics. Kevin received his undergraduate degree from the University of Notre Dame, his MD from the University of Oklahoma, as well as his master's in bioethics. He trained in pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine, completed fellowships in pediatric gastroenterology at the Children's Hospital of Oklahoma and the NIH in Bethesda, Maryland, and was board certified in pediatric gastroenterology. Prior to his return to Georgetown, Kevin had served as section chief, vice chair, interim chair, and professor of pediatrics at the University of Oklahoma College of Medicine, Tulsa, where he was the founding director of the Oklahoma Bioethics Center. Kevin has been married to Mary for 51 years and has four children and nine grandchildren. That was a heck of a bio there. That's impressive. <laughs> I thought it was impressive that I was able to read it so quickly. I noticed Mike lets you do all the tongue twisters. Mike I try. do all yep. the tongue. Thank you so it's, much for being here, Kevin. He's also a parishioner here at the Church of St. Yep. Mary. Are you? Uh, did you grow up here in Tulsa? Um, my family was one of the uh, founding families of St. Mary's Parish. Oh, nice. Okay. I actually uh, went to Mass at the Brook Theater before oh, the church was completed when we well, were little. What was that like? Well, there were no cartoons. We were yeah. disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no there was popcorn. popcorn. There oh, was, was there? Popcorn, okay. But you had to pick it up off the floor. Oh, nice. <laughs> In the middle of Mass. That, that, I'm glad now that we have our new beautiful church. And it's, it's, it's a, a, a vast improvement. A vast mm-hmm. improvement. So did you go to the school here? I was in the first first grade with wow. a couple of the parishioners who were still around. And then on to Kasha or Bishop Kelly? On to Kasha and, uh, and then on to college and all the rest of that stuff you were talking on about. On to the University <laughs> of Notre Dame. Yes. Well, and you've been interviewed by NPR and all kinds of, of great uh, media outlets, and you finally made it to Glory Be. I know. So I like you is... much better than Diane Reen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I always liked Diane Reen. Yep. I know. I thought that was really interesting. I was telling Mike, you know, he was interviewed by Al Jazeera mm-hmm. <laughs> and the New York Times and Washington Post and now the Glory Be podcast. So, so I can retire now. That's right. You can retire. <laughs> Check all the boxes. So you're currently, um, we were talking before the podcast, so you are currently a professor still at Georgetown. You're doing some of that virtually. So yes. tell me about, let's, let's back up a little bit. So tell us your story. Like, how did you end up even being a bioethicist? So you go to Notre Dame. What's your undergraduate degree? Well, I, I had a liberal arts undergraduate degree, but it was in pre-professional studies because mm. I thought I'd better learn something about the world and the humanities because once I start medicine, if I were lucky enough to get to medical school, uh, it would all be science. Right. And uh, so, you know, I had kind of kind of worked my way up from St. Mary's onward. And uh, Kasha was a, a big change because it was all male at the time. 
and it was small. I mean, our graduating class was 48, which was nice wow. because you could do things like sports and things. Yeah. And all you had to do was try out, and you were right. on the team. <laughs> and, you know, so it was less impressive. I mean, I was kind of proud of myself because I graduated first in the class, you know, and I was a national year finalist and all. 48 guys. <laughs> so college was, was another experience where you yeah. learned. But there are a lot of other smart people out there, and mm-hmm. many of them are smarter. But still, you could do some things in college that you couldn't do. Right. Uh, and it was a very interesting time to to be in school because it was the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of changes of Vatican II, Vietnam War, a lot of things going on in the world and in the church. Uh, and... Uh, I, I look back on Notre Dame as having been a very good experience, uh, and I would be remiss and also in danger if I didn't say the best thing about Notre Dame was that uh, I met Mary Powers, uh-huh. who is now Mary Donovan. Mm-hmm. Was she at St. Mary's? No, she was at uh, a girls' school uh, just north of Chicago called Barra College, uh, but they, uh, because they were a small girls' school, they were mostly in South Bend on weekends. Yeah. So oh. we, <laughs> they were happy to be there, and we were grateful. Yes. Right. Right. Remember, Notre Dame was all male at the time, right. too. Oh, gosh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. So I went to all six years of all-male junior high high school, then four years of all-male college, and then I went to medical school, which was almost all-male. Yeah. It wasn't all-male. We had six females yeah. in our class. Wow. Now, did you get married before you went to medical school? I uh, got married in medical school okay. after I had started. And, uh, we had been living apart and thought, you know, we either need to break up or get married. And mm-hmm. we took a vote. <laughs> <laughs> and thank goodness marriage won. Yeah. So it's <laughs> unanimous. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you assume. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you, you get married, then you get out of medical school and you start practicing medicine? Well, no. What what you do then is you go and train in a specialty area. Uh, And so at medical school, I decided uh, first year that perhaps, you know, all diseases my professor was teaching me is ultimately psychiatric, and that's what you should do. And then the next year, I thought, well, you really should try and take care of an entire family, and, and family medicine was just really being developed at that time. And then the following year, the professors had convinced me that internal medicine was the queen of the sciences. So I ended up a pediatrician. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, what happened is in the fourth year, I uh, I was taking care of a, uh, a child who had been badly burned and uh, badly injured deliberately by a babysitter. Mm. And I took care of him during the entire rotation with him. And he was also the first patient I ever had who died. Yeah. Mm. And that changed my life. Mm-hmm. And so... That's when you decided to put your focus on pediatrics? Oh, yeah, yeah. I always liked children mm-hmm. uh, and had thought that pediatrics might be nice, but after that I thought, I, that's really what I want to do with my life, and I was going to be a general pediatrician. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's when I ended up in Houston training to uh, in pediatrics. And so then you go to Baylor. Is, is that part that of That was this? Houston, right. Okay, yeah. Baylor's in Houston. No, I didn't realize that. Well, there are two Baylors, so it gets tricky. There's a Baylor Medical Center in Dallas. Okay. And there's a Baylor Medical School in Houston, and they used to be together, and now they're not. Okay. Oh. So you, when did you get, because you, pediatric gastroenterology, like, that's very specific. Well, isn't it, though? <laughs> and it's an odd thing for a general pediatrician, but uh, it was really very strange. I had thought while we were in medical school that it would be nice for me to earn a little bit more money, too, 
And I also thought I'd like to practice in a place where they really needed some help. And so I had signed up for the National Health Service Corps. And um, for reasons we don't even have to get into, it was just where we wanted to go. We were getting blocked from, from going there. And I wanted to go someplace where I could stay and serve and we wouldn't just do to and out. Uh, and so right about at that time, one of my colleagues in residency said, oh, you're thinking about doing that? That's funny because we all expected you to go into gastroenterology. I said, oh, really? Because <laughs> I had never really had that cross my mind yeah. as something to do. Yeah. I liked it a lot. I mm-hmm. had worked on the, the rotations and enjoyed it and, and uh, thought it was very worthwhile. But I thought, hmm. I went home and said, Mary, Wally just said the funniest thing while yeah. we were on call. What do you think of that? And... Uh, it was kind of late in the game for me to decide to do a fellowship, which is what I ended up doing. But um, I ended up being introduced and hooked up with a, uh, a professor at Children's Hospital in Oklahoma City who became not only a mentor but a lifelong friend. Oh. And it was just a wonderful experience. It was like, geez, I didn't think it could get any more fun. Mm-hmm. And here it is. Right. That's amazing. And did you start having children during this time? Mary had all the children. <laughs> <laughs> did Mary begin to have children during yes, this Yes, she did. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a doctor, but I know that one. <laughs> I didn't go to medical school, obviously. You so, poor thing. <laughs> so, so we need to explain, yes, we need to explain that to you. We need to explain that to me. Yes, now. we had our first child in Houston, and then our next child was in Oklahoma City, and then our next child was in Washington, D.C., because I was at that time at the uh, National Institutes of Health, the NIH, Bethesda, uh, just outside of Washington. And then our uh, next child was born in Tulsa when we moved back here for the first time as a family. And um, after that, we, we realized, you know, where, where babies must come from. They, they come mm-hmm. from... Packing up and moving. So. <laughs> yeah. So we've stayed in Tulsa <laughs> all the rest time. of that time until we moved back to Washington about 10 years ago. Yeah. Okay. So you also, I kind of have a, a little bit of a perspective on how you got back here, but how did you get involved with bioethics? Because I don't think of pediatrics and bioethics and the University of Oklahoma. Well, you're right. And, and, uh, and as I tell you these stories, you think, boy, he certainly has lived an unplanned life, which mm-hmm. wasn't what I intended at all. But I, w- I was here and uh, and pretty busy, and I was approached by Sister Blondine, who was the, uh, the CEO of St. Francis Hospital at the time, and she asked me to head the ethics committee at the hospital uh, for reasons that are still a mystery <laughs> to me. Uh, but I did that, and uh, we had our first meeting, and we were actually talking about some problems to do with a particular patient, and I uh, listened to everybody and looked around the table and thought, I don't know what I'm talking about. And neither does anybody else at this yeah. table, except one man who was a Jesuit priest and planning on leaving the next year. Oh, gosh. Thought, Ooh. And, you know, everybody thought ethics was really important, which it mm-hmm. is. It's certainly important in the profession of medicine, and I had always felt that way, which is why I accepted the uh, position. But I thought, I'd better learn something about this if I'm going to continue uh, being involved in it, and had been at the university long enough that I could take a sabbatical. So I applied for the sabbatical and was turned down, not by the university, but by I needed funding for it as well. 
At which point, Sister Plantine stepped in and said, oh, no, he needs funding and you're going to provide it. So, you know, out of my own control, but off we go. And we went to Washington for the second time on sabbatical, and that's because I had already met this uh, founder of modern-day bioethics. His name is uh, Dr. Edmund Pellegrino, and he was a, a giant in the field. About your height, and <laughs> really was good, and and uh, and just a marvelous intellect and a, a very faithful Catholic, um, and a, a brilliant man who just if you ask him, can I come study with you? Sure. Wow. So yeah, it was really that rigorous. So <laughs> we went there on sabbatical. His name was brought up in my seminary time, former seminarian, but uh, we would talk about bioethics briefly, mm-hmm. and it was all the hypotheticals. You know, and Pellegrino would say this, and you know, some other school of thought would say that, and so there's great debate over all these what if situations. But you've got to make it practical, and and he would do that as well, and that's mm-hmm. one of the things that attracted me mm-hmm. to him. And uh, so I spent some time with there, learning that. Started my master's program while I was at Georgetown, mm-hmm. and developed a, a relationship with him that was ongoing. But uh, then came back here. That's when I started the Bioethics Center for the University because we didn't really have much of a formal bioethics mm-hmm. program. Can you imagine in medical school? It's, and that was not uncommon. Most right. didn't at the time, but they were starting to realize the need. So, um, Is there a common – I, too, took a bioethics class when I was in grad school. But we – you know, it was at a Catholic school, so we could apply sort of Catholic ethics. How, how does an ethics system work in a, at the University of Oklahoma – it's a little challenging, of course, because uh, it has to be in its orientation secular because the university is. Um, I always think I got a little bit of a break doing it in Tulsa because we had three teaching hospitals, uh, Hillcrest, St. John, St. Francis. I worked at all of them mm-hmm. in my uh, pediatric gastroenterology work and ended up on the ethics committees for all three, too. But you notice that two out of three are Catholic. Mm-hmm. So for the in-hospital work, you know, that was that was uh, not really a strain. The, the good news is if you think that there is such a thing as truth, then you just have to find a way of expressing that truth that doesn't rely on, um, on church documents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Or the Bible. Yeah. Uh, but that really was one of the things that Pellegrino was excellent mm-hmm. at doing. So you kind of follow his lead yeah how did you end up being a teacher at georgetown uh (laughs) (laughs) so you're practicing you know and and it uh it was really kind of blindsiding me because i get a call from uh from pellegrino's secretary who i had known for many years at that point and uh she said well uh dr pellegrino wants you to uh to come for an interview and i said for what and he said well he's gonna finally stepped down from his position as director of the uh, Bioethics Center that he founded here. And uh, and he wants you to be a candidate for that position, so you need to come for an interview, which flabbergasted me. Mm-hmm. Is that a verb? Yes, yep. that's a word. Good. And uh, so I was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I, I was uh, terribly flattered, and I thought that's, you know, also a little ridiculous uh, because, I mean, this man is a... Um, internationally eminent scholar and i'm me 
But I was happy to do that, and I thought that's just going to be the uh, the finest compliment in my life. Mm-hmm. And I went on up there and uh, had the interviews and saw some people that I had known from our previous time there, and that was nice. And didn't hear anything for nine months. <laughs> and then I get another call, and she called again and said, uh, Dr. Pellegrino has been very unhappy with the progress of the committee here, so he's taken it over. The search committee is now in his hands, and he wants you to come on up. Oh, totally different. I'm met at the airport by a limo. <laughs> wow. Know, put up in a nicer hotel. Yeah. <laughs> um, and basically, he said, no, I want you to come. I want you to come. Wow. Which I still don't fully understand, but I was really pleased by that. I thought, what a wonderful way to kind of finish up a person's career. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem was, of course, I came back and told Mary, I think this could really work. Yeah. But at that point, I was chairman of the pediatric department, interim chairman. I didn't want that job permanently. I was the uh, sole practicing pediatric gastroenterologist in town. We'd had some turnover. Uh, I was running the bioethics center here, and I could manage the bioethics center. We had somebody who wanted to be chairman. Uh, I didn't have anybody to take care of my patients, and I thought, it's kind of bad form to uh, abandon your patients in order to go teach medical ethics. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it just, there was a disconnect there. Yeah. And, um, and somewhat out of the blue, a guy calls me uh, from Kansas City saying, I've been considering a change of location. I understand you might have a position down there. Could I come interview for it? <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So everything fell into place and yeah. off we went. Yes, an affirming sign for sure. Yep. You can yeah. see God's hand yes. in all that. Yes, <laughs> I have been seeing that and hearing that as you've been talking about your story, which is just a really appropriate way to shift, you know, to the second part of our podcast, which is it's interesting people, which you are, which we've talked about. Yeah. The next part is how you pray. How so do you I'm, find time uh, to really? pray? <laughs> That's my big one. Well, uh, you know, I, I, I disputed you from the beginning when you said it's about interesting people. I, th- I think... <laughs> I've I've had interesting things happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's been an interesting life, uh, yeah. you know. So boring people can have an interesting life. Uh but the good thing about preparing in my mind a little bit of, you know, what we might talk about is it was once again made really clear, not that it hadn't been a little in the past, how many of these things just seem to happen mm-hmm. in my life. Um and you look back and you say Wow, you know, there really was a plan. Mm-hmm. It wasn't mine, <laughs> thank goodness. Yeah. And uh, and at each little part in your life where you think you're planning something, the plan may just take a little turn or a big turn, and you realize that you, the Holy Spirit's been working in your life. You know, you better go with that plan unless you're really stupid. And I wasn't really <laughs> stupid. <laughs> You know, you've been influenced by the Augustinians, the is, Holy Cross. Isn't that Fathers? funny? I was thinking about that. Well, started with the and Felicians. The oh, nice. Oh, the, yeah. At St. Mary's, we had Felicians, yeah. and they were Polish Felicians. They were tough. And, and lots of starch. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, also in their wimple. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and their spine. <laughs> and then, uh, and then yes, and then we went over to the Augustinians, and then I went to the Holy Cross, and then, uh, and then to the Jesuits at uh, Georgetown. And um, and a lot of people, you know, gave me a little static about uh, Georgetown and the Jesuits. But the truth is, it, that was a wonderful experience. So I'm maybe going to work backwards and answer the question, yeah. how do you pray? Uh, because Georgetown was, was a really great experience. First off, and I'm not 
teasing here. There are some very um, holy Catholic Jesuits yeah. Yeah. at Georgetown, and I was lucky enough to to meet them and work with them, and one of them was my spiritual advisor, and that was really um, extremely important, not only in my work but in, in spiritual life. And then the one thing that Georgetown gave me that kind of answers your question was uh, time enough to go to daily mass and convenience enough that it was there all the time. Uh, you could go to confession regularly, go to mass regularly, and it really does change your day-to-day life yeah. for the better. Uh, you know, and, and like Bishop Barron keeps like in quote that, you know, the Eucharist is food for the journey. Right. And, uh, and that was so much more available. I mean, they had mass at the hospital, mm-hmm. When I was working there, and you could make it sometimes once a week if you were really lucky and nobody was sick and you didn't yeah. finish rounds on time. And um, but this was totally different. And uh, all the time before that, it was like you said: how do you find time to pray? Mm-hmm. It wasn't that we didn't pray, uh, but you know, we'd say morning prayers, we'd say evening prayers with the kids, we'd say the rosary when we could, we'd always say prayers before meals, and you you know you. would Worked it in as best you can, and it was like just so constantly busy. Um, and part of it was the shift in professional work. Part of it was the uh, the age mm-hmm. stage of our lives. But it's such a blessing then to to consciously incorporate your prayer life into your daily life in a much bigger way, and all of a sudden. We've always been Catholic, but in this case, the relationship became more important than, than the uh, the fact that you you know are practicing Catholic and you follow the rules and the dogma. And that's been, I think, the the happiest part about it for for both of us, Mary and myself. Yeah. Well, and that relationship with God yeah. know, permeated your family, and so you've got a son who's a priest, which I is do. exciting. We hope to have Father Sean Donovan on and the next couple months uh but you know i i uh i'm extremely proud yeah. of him and, mm-hmm. and i don't want to take anything it sound like i'm taking anything away from yeah. that but I, I also don't think that you know parents are always being congratulated oh you have a daughter who's a nun you have a yeah. son who's a priest and, <laughs> and being very proud of him doesn't mean yeah. you should probably be taking any sort of personal credit because you know the ones who haven't turned out as well in terms of their faith mm-hmm. there's one of those you know uh kind of break your heart and then the ones that have and that's the rest of them really you're very proud of them uh but you really feel those are their decisions and maybe you've been able to modify it but uh those who and all of us have somebody in the family someplace who just aren't taking advantage of the mm-hmm. faith that you thought you were trying to inculcate trying to teach them it, it occurs to me that it's like people who have a, a child who's got anorexia nervosa mm-hmm. and they say you know i don't i don't need that food and you're saying well, yes you really do you know talk about food for the journey but at the same time you know that's them that's not you depriving them mm-hmm. and and so you just pray and hope that they can take advantage of what you have made available to them okay by i remember an example one time uh one of my kids had some big success, and they said, Sharon, congratulations, except it was despite you. You know, like, 
not because they've of, overcome. They've overcome. Yeah. Yes. So I. I it was that the first time that's... one of your children dunked a basketball? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so it is that kind of. I understand what you're saying. You know that that you were able to give him the faith, but then it was his decision. You know, mm-hmm. when he was an adult to right. decide to choose or not to choose the faith you know so okay so has there been we always ask everybody has there been a time in your life when it's been difficult to pray you know it seems like god was so much a part of your life um not just in your practice of your faith and and how you prayed with your family and but just sort of in guiding your life but was there a time when when you weren't aware of that or when there was a tragedy or (laughs) i think what's terrible is we take a lot for granted and the younger we are, maybe the more that's true. It wasn't my case, I'm sure. I mean, my parents were, were uh, strong Catholics, and we went to uh, daily Mass once we'd moved closer to, to uh, where I could walk to the chapel at, at Yasha, even. Um, and at the same time, it, it, there is the risk for younger people that you do it because this is what we do. It's almost by rote. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and I, I really wasn't a bad kid. You know, my parents did ask that I not drink, smoke, you know, or chase girls. Well, actually, just the first two in high school. <laughs> in high school. You know, and I did chase them. I didn't catch. Them. <laughs> it was more like a fisherman, you know, catch and release. Right. Okay. But at that time, you're aware of it, but it, it, I don't know how deeply personal uh, my prayer life was at that point. It was, you know, these are the prayers we say, so we say them. You know, you go to mass on Sundays, and you do that. You know, I, I did that in in college. Nobody was checking and putting a check mark by your name as you walked into the chapel. Um, but it, then you have, you know, kids and a career and a lot of responsibilities and a lot of activities, and of course we had a bunch of kids, not as many as. A lot of others, we tried to limit their activities, you know, to two per kid per mm-hmm. week, which comes out to eight. Yeah. And they're seven days in a week, so you can imagine. Right. Um, and so, yes, we were doing it. We were praying. But I think that the, uh, the, the, the richness and the depth of prayer that, that can be achieved is really, really hard for the parents of young children. Yeah. And, you know, I, all I can say to them is, Get through it because, you know, if you manage to, to do that together, you know, and reacquaint yourself to your spouse occasionally, mm-hmm. um, then it does get better. It does get better. Okay, so one final question before we sign off is if you could ask everyone in the world to join you in praying for one intention, what would that be? Who would you like all of our thousands of li- okay hundreds of listeners <laughs> to join you in praying for well when we say family prayers and it's kind of nice because i see my children teaching the same pattern of prayer to to their children we we would always include you know those most in need in the world those who are suffering you know physically or spiritually or mentally and and those who are uh, refugees and for troubled families and those who are sick and dying particularly. And of course, how could you not pray for that? But that's so global uh, that everybody should be praying that. Actually, I knew you were going to ask me this. 
and it occurred to me maybe my favorite prayer petition would be the one from Thomas More that I do love and I think really gets to the point of it all. Pray for me as I will pray for thee that we may merrily meet in heaven. Hmm. That's beautiful. That's beautiful, yeah. That's great. Well, would you lead us in a glory be? I'd be delighted. Glory be to the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as, as it was, was in the beginning, beginning is, is now, and, and ever shall be, world, world without end. end. Amen. Well, thank you so much. Yes, it was a This has been a fantastic episode. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Glory Be is a production of the Office of Communications at the Church of St. Mary in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm your producer, Mike Malcolm. See you next time.